Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 5, verse 17. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 17. I read this week of a wealthy inventor who said, without exception, after I've invented something and patented it, at least 10 men come to me and say, I thought of that a long time ago. But the difference between their poverty and my wealth is that I thought about it, they thought about it, they didn't do anything about it, but I did. And the same thing is true spiritually. There are those who think, you know, I really should share my faith. I really should. I mean, I really should get involved. I really should intercede for others. And they think, and they think, and they think, and they think, and they remain poor spiritually. The ones who are used by the Lord are those who not only hear, but do as well. The largest nation in the world, do you know what the largest nation in the world is? Procrasta. Procrastination. That's true. Our tendency is to say, oh, thank you, Lord. You freed me from prison, Lord. You freed me from eternal damnation and from a meaningless existence and from emotional depression. You opened the door for me, Lord, and I'm so thankful. I'm going to share the gospel with others real soon, maybe at noon or maybe tomorrow night. Procrastination is a real problem in spiritual life and in spiritual discipline. Listen, when the Lord speaks to your heart, whether it be in a situation like this in the church or whether you're in a Bible study or in your devotions or through a book that you read or through a brother or a sister, learn to respond immediately. That's what the apostles did in the early church. They were put in prison and they were miraculously released and they didn't procrastinate or hesitate, but they went immediately to the temple and they began to do what God told them to do, and that was to share the word of God. They didn't go to the temple just the first chance they had or when they thought about it. They didn't wait till noon. No, immediately from the release from prison in the middle of the night or the night before, the apostles headed straight for the temple early the next morning. Now we're going to see that in a few moments. But why did they get thrown into prison? They weren't thrown into prison because they had committed a crime, but they were thrown into prison because, as verse 14 says, Acts 5, verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Not only that, verse 15, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And now verse 17, where we left off last time. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Now, the Sadducees were one of the quote-unquote denominations of Judaism at that time, and they were the ruling aristocracy. The government of the Jewish state under the conquering Roman Empire was in the hands of the Sadducees, and they didn't believe 
in very much. They certainly didn't believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They believed that the soul died when the man died. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in retribution. They didn't believe in rewards, good or evil. And they certainly did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. You could call them the practical atheists and practical infidels of their day. So, being vehemently opposed to anything having to do with the supernatural, it is no wonder that after observing this multitude of healings, the Sadducees were filled with indignation. And that's what it says in verse 17, that they were filled. Now, earlier it talked about the, the apostles being filled with the Spirit. These men are filled with indignation. Indignation, the Greek word is zelos, and it means a fierceness of jealousy. See, this was one of the problems that the chief priests had with Jesus just a few weeks earlier. They were jealous of his popularity among the people, Matthew 27, verse 18 says. And not only that, they were even more jealous to think that these apostles were now preaching the resurrection, something they didn't believe in, and so many thousands of people were coming to Jesus Christ. And not only that, these men were jealous because they saw these men as uneducated, unlearned, undignified fishermen, and here they were accomplishing more in their ministry than the cold, lifeless Sadducees could ever imagine in their ministry. Listen, you need to be all, always be careful about jealousy because it can cause you to do a lot of things that you're going to regret later. You know, some people are just jealous, like these men who are jealous. They're jealous over other people getting ahead of them. Charles L. Allen wrote a book titled The Miracle of Love, and in it he tells of a fisherman friend who told him that when you're catching crabs, you never have to put a top on the basket of crabs. And the reason is basically because of jealousy. You see, if one of the crabs starts to climb up the sides of the basket, the other crabs will reach up and pull it back down, won't let any of them out so none of them can get out. Some people are a lot like crabs. And then there are some people who are unreasonably jealous over their spouse. And when that is going on, it can cause a great deal of difficulty and damage in the marriage relationship. That started back in the garden, you realize that. You know, when Adam stayed out very late for a few nights, Eve became very, very upset. And she accused him. She said, you've been running around with other women. She says, I know you've been running around with other women. And Adam said, Eve, you're being very unreasonable. You're the only woman on earth. <laughs> well, the quarrel continued until Adam fell asleep, only to be awakened by somebody poking him in the chest. It was Eve. What do you think you're doing, he said. Counting your ribs, she said. <laughs> That's extra biblical commentary. <laughs> Jealousy is a horrible thing. Do you know where it comes from? Listen to James 3.14. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your hearts, don't brag about being wise. That is the worst kind of lie. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and motivated by the devil. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. That's what's happening to the Sadducees. They were earthly, unspiritual, and they're motivated by the devil. 
Verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. Now, before, they had put Peter and John uh, in prison, and now they take all of the apostles collectively, and they put them into a common prison. That is just a public jail. Verse 19, But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, it's really interesting that an angel sprung them. I mean, it's interesting because the Sadducees do not believe in angels, see? So God sends an angel to release them. God really has a sense of humor, doesn't he? It says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.14, that the angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to us who are the heirs of salvation. So at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, the apostles were told that they were being released miraculously for a specific purpose. The angel said, I'm setting you free of this prison so that you can get back to communicating life. Now, the different translations of this compelling command are very interesting. We're reading this morning out of the New King James Version, and it says, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The New Century Version says, Go stand in the temple and tell the people everything about this new life. The New American Standard Version says, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And then the New Living Translation says, Go to the temple and give the people this message of life. Now all of these and other contemporary translations capture the urgency of this call to be active in service for God. You see, he's saying, go to where the people are. Offer them the only gift that will give them life now and forever. Life in Christ and his life in people is the only hope and the only power. And that is exactly what the apostles did, and that is exactly what each one of us are called to do. You see, our message is to be, this is the life. The word life is used 36 times in the New Testament, and it is a synonym for the Lord himself. The Apostle John, who was among those who were in prison that day and who were released from prison, when he came near to the conclusion of his long life of ministry in the power of the Spirit, he said, speaking of Jesus in John 1 verse 4, he said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, the word life summarizes Jesus' ministry and his message. In John 6.35, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was saying that he was God's bread from heaven to feed the deepest needs of our lives. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then he went to the cross of Calvary to give us eternal life and to prepare for us an eternal place. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, 
we have new life. It's a new quality of existence. It's as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the life. Jesus shows us what living is all about. So verse 19 again, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And that is to be the pattern for our life as well. We are set free so that we may proclaim all the words of this life instead of being set free for our own pleasure and comfort. Now, just a word about the prisons from which he releases us so that we can go tell all the words of this life. Now, we are not in physical prison like they were, but there are prisons of our own making, aren't there? Fear of being criticized is like a prison. Lack of courage. Anxiety about failure. But probably the most tightly locked prison in which we live is our lack of freedom in living the abundant life itself. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. Lloyd Ogilvie, chaplain of the U.S. Senate, says this, and I quote, There is a direct ratio between fresh discoveries of new life in Christ and vital communication of it. There is no prison worse than sameness. The best gift we can give the people to whom we are sent to tell all about life is to concentrate on being all that life entails in our own study of Scripture and our abandonment of the safe and secure for the adventure of this Spirit-filled life. We won't be able to control what happens to and around us, but the Spirit will be in control. End quote. What is your prison? Security, a job, the success of the past? Or who is your security? I mean, is there anyone that is holding you back? Friend or spouse or maybe your children? The Spirit wants to set us free because that truly is the life. So at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Now, as I mentioned before, these guys didn't procrastinate. They went early in the morning. They obeyed, and they obeyed fully and completely without hesitation. They obeyed as soon as they could. It says they arose early in the morning, literally at daybreak, at dawn. You see, they weren't like the Tate family. Have you ever met the Tate family? They're in every church. First there's Dick, dictate, he wants to run everything. And then you have Roe, rotate is always trying to change things. And then you have Agi. Agitate, I mean, he stirs up trouble wherever possible with the help of his brother Irritate, who is always there to lend a hand. And then you have Imitate, he just wants to copy what other churches do and never try anything new. And of course, then you always have Devis, devastate. He loves to be interruptive, and then you have potentate. He wants to be the big shot. And then you have the triplets of the, of the Tate family. There's uh, Facili, Kaji, and Medi. Facilitate, Cogitate, and Meditate. And, and they're the, always the ones, really. They want to save the day, and they want to get everyone pulling together. But every time they do that, 
here comes Hezzy and Veggie. <laughs> Hesitate and vegetate, and, uh, and they just try to slow everything down. Well, that's the Tate family, and uh, not related in any way to the apostles who did not hesitate or vegetate, but got right down to it before dawn and went for it. Well, verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. And now we see one of the classic examples of double take in all scripture. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together. The council refers to the Sanhedrin. Called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison door shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. There is power in God to set men free when they are put in prison. I mean, it's no problem for God to get a man out of jail. I mean, he doesn't even have to go through the bail bondsman. I mean, he just sends an angel. And it happens again in the book of Acts. I mean, he can even send an earthquake as he did with Paul and Silas in, in Philippi. See, it's no problem to God to get his people out of prison. But it is also clear from events later on in the book of Acts and in church history that God does not always intend to get his people out of prison physically. But the point is, as Paul, the apostle, so beautifully points it out in 2 Timothy 2.9, he says that the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not in chains. You see, man cannot stop the word of God. Man cannot stop the power of God. The resurrection power of a living God cannot be held by prison walls or gates or bars or chains. Men have been taught that lesson again and again and again in history, and yet they never seem to learn. They, they strike back with the only procedure that they know, and that is to put someone in prison and lock them up. But you cannot lock up ideas. You cannot hinder the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God with prisons. There's a tremendous liberty always present whenever the Word of God is spoken in power. Cannot be stopped simply by the arrest of Christians. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. It says that there that they, they, they wondered. Diaporeo is the Greek word, and it means that they were completely baffled. They were perplexed. I mean, they were at a loss. They, they were thoroughly puzzled. They could not silence the apostles or keep them in prison. I mean, what could they do? The apostles' popularity among the people precluded the possibility that they could do to them what they had done to Jesus. So these leaders were cornered, you see, and they knew it. And there was nothing to do at that point but bring the apostles back before them for further threatening and warning. But then the Sanhedrin made an unbelievable discovery. The apostles had not fled for their lives like other escaped convicts would. Verse 25. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They were standing in the temple and they were teaching the people. They were demonstrating unbelievable behavior, not like other men. You see, they were like a blazing fire on a rampage through the forest. They're unstoppable. And you know, this has to be one of the most embarrassing times for the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of all Israel. 
And for the temple guards, I think this was probably what you could call an Excedrin headache. Not only are the apostles not in prison, but they're back in the temple telling the people about Jesus. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Now notice that the apostles did not appeal to popular opinion for protection against the Jewish rulers. I mean, they didn't say to the people, are you going to let them take us away? I mean, they could have done that. See, their trust was in God and in God alone. A carnal solution to their problem was available, but they would not take it. And notice that the hearts of the Jewish rulers here are really exposed. They do fear the people, but they don't fear God. And when they brought them, verse 27, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you, literally, did we not command a command, not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a wonderful testimony of the effectiveness of the message preached by the apostles. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, realize now that this is not some kind of an evangelist bragging about the great work that he has just done. This is the report of their enemy. You have filled Jerusalem with man's doctrine. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our enemies could testify against us and make that kind of a charge? If they could say, you have filled Orlando with this man's doctrine, what a wonderful thing that would be. And then they say, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice that they say this man. That's just an obvious attempt to avoid having to say the name Jesus. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now they're singing a completely different tune. I mean, just a few weeks before, this was the very thing that they had asked for. Matthew 27 and verse 25, when Pilate washed his hands at Jesus' trial, he said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. And the chief priests and the elders had primed the people to respond with, let his blood be on us and on our children. They asked for it, but now they don't take the responsibility for what they had done. Well, now Peter is going to give a testimony of great boldness in contrast to the Sanhedrin who were more concerned about man's opinion than they were about God's. Verse 29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, the translations that we are using, both the Old King James and the New King James translation, is a little unfortunate here because obeying God is not some kind of an optional obligation. Literally, it is we must obey God rather than men. God help us that we would experience and feel in our own hearts that divine imperative. I must obey God. Unfortunately, we often take a very careless attitude in the area of obedience. We say, well, yes, I should be obeying, or yes, I, I know I probably should obey God here. Yes, I know that I should. That's not the way these men felt. It was much deeper with them. They said we must obey God rather than man. Peter goes on, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter emphasized the same three points that he had used when he had addressed the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 regarding the healing of the lame man. Number one, he and the apostles must obey God, not men, including the Sanhedrin. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God's Messiah, and he is alive. And thirdly, he is living in us. And now verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. The rage of the Sadducees and the Pharisees burned so furiously at hearing those things again that their previous caution about killing them went out the window. The word furious here actually means that they were torn asunder or sawn apart in their anger. You see, they had such tremendous conviction in their hearts. It cut them to the quick. But they did not respond to the conviction, but their hearts were hardened. And it says they plotted to kill them. That is, with resoluteness of will, they were determined to do it. Now, this is a great example of the fact that man is in the grip of forces beyond his knowledge, evil forces which are implacably opposed to the will and the purpose and the love of God. Whenever truth is uttered, it enrages men like this. They oppose it with the only weapon that they can think of, physical violence. This explains the fact that whenever the gospel goes, wherever it goes, it not only invites men, it not only attracts men and redeems men, but it also enrages others. It is always a very disturbing thing. But God wants us to look beyond the immediate opposition of men and understand that the opposition would never occur if it were not for the existence of certain evil forces working behind mankind. As it says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. That is where the opposition and hostility is coming from. And if you do not view the opposition to the gospel from that point of view, you will never understand life. You cannot explain what occurs in history unless you understand it from that point of view. There are evil forces at work. And how do you explain all of the evil that is going on today? Murder rape, robbery. How do you explain that? It is because there are evil forces at work. People are controlled, as Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us, people are controlled by the prince of the power of the air, those that are not redeemed. They're controlled. There is a force that is working in their lives. We don't wrestle against mankind you see, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.